0: I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter one. December 20th, the week of Christmas. As we come to weeks like this, I'm reminded of how thankful I am for tradition and for routine. And something I think about a lot and something actually I, I express to you quite a lot. I love that God's made us people of rhythms, even our weekly gathering, that that we come together week after week, and for most of us, this isn't something that we decide from week to week whether we're going to be here. We come. This is the rhythm and the, the habit that God has called us to and that we keep, and I'm thankful for it because we come on good weeks, and we come on rough weeks, and we come in all seasons. Coming together, uniting with other followers of Christ to proclaim together the hope that we have in Jesus. And we need this every Lord's Day, don't we? Every week, this reminder. I like that rhythm. And in the same way, I'm thankful for holidays like Christmas. Not prescribed by God necessarily that we would celebrate it in this way, but I'm thankful for the yearly habit that we have this time set aside, not only as Christians, but (laughs) It's time that the whole, you know, our nation and much of the world embraces. We know it's been set aside for us to remember the birth of Christ, the coming of God, the taking on of flesh. We think about Mary and Joseph, the announcements from the angels, that trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, a manger, the humble way that God, very God, entered our world. So much for us about Christmas. It's about looking back. I hope you spend time this week looking back. And and that can take many forms. In your personal scripture reading this week, look back. Read the stories. Go to Luke chapter one. Go to the start of the gospel of Matthew. Read of the birth of Christ. Look back and remember. Maybe you could do this as family worship. Opening and reading the story of the coming of Christ, the birth of our Lord with your kids or with your extended family. I hope this week is a week of purposeful looking back, allowing yourself to be in awe of what God did. And hopefully the the conversations we've had over the past two weeks would help. We started two weeks ago in our start of Advent considering that God, fully God came, the glory of God revealed on earth. And then last week, we considered the humanity of our Lord, the glory of God in flesh. This is our annual opportunity that we set aside to look back, and I do hope you have plans for that this week. But this morning, as we go to the scriptures, what I want to help us consider is that Christmas is not only an opportunity to look back. We should look back with awe and with gratitude, but that, Christmas isn't only a chance to look back, but that Christmas is a reminder to look forward. To look forward with confidence and with hope. This morning as we go to Luke chapter 1, we can consider that what happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is the reason that we have hope today and every day hereafter. Christmas gives us hope for the future. We're going to consider that when Jesus was born, a king was born. And the king that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is a king who's come establishing a kingdom and a king who's going to reign forever. My prayer going into this morning is that we would be able to prepare our hearts for Christmas. And that after our time in God's word this morning, you and I... We'll be more ready for Christmas, more ready to behold Christ as the forever king who was born in Bethlehem. Last week we talked about one of the songs we sang, and I want to do it again. (laughs) This morning we began our service with the song Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Traditionally sung at Christmas. But what's interesting, maybe you know this, maybe you don't is that it wasn't necessarily written with the first coming of Christ in mind. Think about the words of the song. No mention of Christmas necessarily. No baby manger. No angels or shepherds. It's a song about the coming of Christ, but not necessarily about his past coming, but about his present coming and his future coming. It's a song about a king who has come, And who is still coming. Bringing the kingdom that's described in that third verse. It's really reminiscent of many of the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah. Pointing forward to what is to come. And so in that third verse we sing, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found far as the curse is found. And what it's describing is this time in the future when there will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more thorns. Cuz Jesus is going to come and make all things new. Everything that was distorted by the fall will be corrected. No more sin, no more thorns. Joy to the world. <laughs> We'll sing together. The Lord has come. It is in large part a song about the future. And so you're asking, you're hoping I'll answer the question, then why do we sing it at Christmas? I don't know the exact answer. But I do know this. It's a song about a king. A king who has come and a king who is still coming. A king, church, who will make all things right. Do you have the ache to see a whole thing's made right? We have a king who's coming who will reign forever. And this is worth celebrating. It's worth singing about. This year, we've had a lot of reason to think about leaders, about rulers, about those who govern. I think it's also been a year when we've been reminded about how imperfect. Human leaders can be. In many ways, I think we're more aware today than we were this time last year of how desperately we need a perfect king. Someone who rules with righteousness. Someone who rules with justice. I don't think I'm alone in the struggle of looking at the current state of affairs and having questions about the future. But this is when Christmas is helpful, because we remember that a king was born, and that the king was born is a king who's coming again, and we can have hope that all that is wrong will be made right, that there is a ruler coming who will rule with righteousness, who will rule with justice, and that king was born in a manger 2,000 years ago to a virgin named Mary. This morning we're going to look at a few different places in scripture, but our primary text is the text we read together just moments ago in Luke chapter 1, so I hope you have your Bibles open. I'm going to read it for us again. It's the interaction between Gabriel, the angel who was sent by God to announce to Mary about the son that was going to be born, and we're going to consider what he says to her about this one who she's going to conceive and to bear. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Hear the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. end. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the preaching of his word. If you've been with us the last couple weeks then you know that the goal of our Advent season has been to focus our attention on Jesus to behold Christ. And so each week over the past three weeks we've asked and answered two questions. First, a question about the nature of Christ, and then the question of why does it matter? So in week one, we asked, what does it mean that Jesus is the glory of God revealed? What does it mean that Jesus is God? Why does it matter? And then in week two, what does it mean that Jesus became a man? That he's the glory of God in flesh? Why does it matter? Well, this week we'll answer a third question. Our question this week is, what does it mean that the birth of Jesus was the birth of a king? What does it mean that the birth of Jesus was the birth of a king? And then the follow-up question, why does it matter? Why does it matter, or how should it impact the way we think and live today that the baby born in Bethlehem was a king. I'll tell you on the front end that it's a bigger question than I can answer in one sermon to consider Jesus as king. What we're going to do is look specifically at this announcement from Gabriel to Mary. He describes in verses 32 and 33 the nature of the child who will be born. We have other passages we read in Matthew that He's come to save his people from his sins. So we'll talk a little bit about his role as savior. But most specifically, what does it mean that he was born as king? As we read these passages from Matthew and from Luke, I wonder how well you do at slowing down and considering what that must have been like for Mary. Can you imagine the thoughts and emotions she must have had when an angel shows up? Just the appearance of an angel. It's wild, right? It's not normal. And, and consider this. It wasn't normal for Mary either. I think Sometimes we read the Bible. and they, Of course, an angel shows up. No, Mary was like you and me. She was having a normal day. And on normal days, angels don't show up. But that's what happened. Gabriel appears to Mary and... What's even more surprising than the fact that he's there, it's what he says. He greets her, he tells her not to be afraid, he tells her she's found favor with God, and then he breaks this news. You're going to have a child. That would be news enough. He goes on. You will call his name Jesus. Jesus. So not only does he tell her she's going to be pregnant, but he tells her the gender and the name. Which means in that time of pregnancy, Mary never wondered boy or girl. She knew from the time Gabriel told her, you're going to have a son. And she didn't have to pull out a a book of names. She was given the name. You'll call him Jesus. She gets that, and that's a lot to take in. I'm going to have a baby. It's going to be a boy. I'm going to call him Jesus. But then he goes on, and this is where things really get interesting. He tells her that the baby she's going to bear will be a king. Now, there's people for whom this news would not be a surprise. Royal families, their child is born, and they think, this child will one day be king. This is Mary. A girl from Nazareth. We read in verse 32 the description of the son that she will bear. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. It's an announcement of a king. We're just going to walk through this announcement together, trying to answer the question, what does it mean that the birth of Jesus is the birth of a king? You may notice it breaks down pretty easily. There's four descriptions here. It gets more obviously regal as it progresses, more specific, but it all works together to announce the coming of a king. We see that first description He will be great. I love the powerful simplicity of that statement. No limits, no parameters, no qualifiers. Simply, he will be great. And we may think that's an understatement, but consider that this word is almost never used in all of Scripture without a qualifier. He'll be a great man or he'll be a great leader. Or as is said of John the Baptist earlier in the chapter. Luke 4, or excuse me, Luke 1, verse 14. Many will rejoice at his birth because he will be great before the Lord. We see that qualifier, but with Jesus there is no qualifier. It's an unusual sentence in the original language, and we see some emphasis here. He will be great. Unqualified, without limits or parameters, in and of himself. Great. We get a sense of his greatness as we consider the next three descriptions. He says, secondly, he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, Mary, no doubt, has been surprised with every single thing the angel has said up to this point. But this is where things really get ratcheted up. Son of the Most High. Not the son of a prophet, not the son of an influential figure. Son of the Most High. We're told later in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist was the prophet of the Most High. But there's a big difference between the spokesman of the Most High and the Son of the Most High. This is what the angel says, this baby will be the Son of God. And that title, Most High, it, we can read it and say he's saying he will be the Son of God, but he does use a different phrase than we see usually. He says he's the Son of the Most High, which is a title for God that draws attention to the fact that God is sovereign and supreme and that he rules over all. There's nothing, there's no one who's above him. He is the Most High. And now Gabriel identifies the coming baby, the baby that Mary is going to carry, as the Son, the Son of the Most High, which is biblical speak for the fact that this baby will share the essence of God. To be a son is to be an equal. You think, but doesn't the Bible say that we're sons of God? Well, we're sons by adoption through Christ. Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father, the one that John says before time he was with God because he was God. Mary is going to give birth to the Son of the Most High, who's of the same essence as God, the true Son and heir of God Almighty. Maybe you already sense the kingly language. If God is the most high, if he's the supreme ruler, if he's the sovereign, and this is the one who's in his line, this is king language. We see that confirmed as we keep reading. He will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Ambiguity gets stripped away here. If you know the Old Testament, then you recognize that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy. Gabriel's telling Mary that the child she's going to bear is the one that Israel has been waiting for, the one that Israel has been watching for. This is the long awaited heir to the throne of David. Some of you understand the weight of that, but it's worth our time to slow down and consider. What does that mean? That Jesus is the long awaited heir to the throne of David? Probably the best way to answer the question is to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to read a little bit here, so if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. As you go there, let me try to give you some bearings of the context we're jumping into. Think back to the nation of Israel, freed from Egypt led out by Moses, later led by Joshua. As we read through the Old Testament, we read the story of this people. The people of God rescued from slavery, living for a time under judges. But the people desired a king. So as we read the Old Testament, we hear the requests of the people of God, we want a king someone to lead them in battle, someone to conquer their enemies, someone to establish them in a new way. And eventually God gave them what they asked for. He gave them a king. You may remember their first king. His name was Saul. And while he did rule with some measure of success, he didn't lead the people to the heights they had hoped for. And he was not a man that pleased God. But it was during the reign of Saul that God revealed a future king, a shepherd boy named David. And even before David took the throne, he had really high ratings among the people. Remember people in the street singing songs. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. They saw him as the great king that they had been waiting for. What we know is that while David did have his faults, he did lead the nation to a height of glory that they never had experienced before. It was under his rule that Jerusalem became the capital. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God, was brought to Jerusalem. Things were formalized and the power of their nation reached an all-time high. It was during this time of prosperity David reigning as a great king in the capital city. He made a decision. I'm going to build God a house. Because up to this point, the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God dwelt, had been housed in a tent. But now here's David, and he's got a house, a palace, no doubt. I'm going to build God a house. And that's where we pick up reading in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Israel has their king and he has a plan. So we read starting in verse 1. Then when the king, David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. So we see here, the time of peace, David has this plan, and he tells it to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan says, yes, go and and do that. But before this begins, God comes to Nathan and gives him a word for David. So we pick up in verse 8. Now, therefore, God to Nathan, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, so that you should be a prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You see the reversal there? David says, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, I'll build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. A lot there. You can mark this as a passage to go back and to read more carefully this week. What we see here is a significant promise. It's what we call the Davidic covenant, if you've heard that description before. God says, you're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. And what God means by that is I'm going to build a dynasty. I'm going to send someone from your flesh who will build a house, a people. God's promising that from his line will come a king who will establish a kingdom that will last forever. And he really puts this emphasis on the fact that it will be eternal. A kingdom with no end. What we see here is that David is not going to be the one to usher it in. It's going to be another one. Someone coming. The promise is made and what we know is that David dies. And when he does, his son Solomon is next in line. And while there were high points in Solomon's reign, including building a temple, his reign was not the reign described by God in this promise. In fact, after Solomon's death, the kingdoms divided. From that time till the time when the angel comes to Mary, there was never another king who ruled over the entire nation. Years, generations go by. By the time of Mary, the people of God are living under Roman rule. Longing for the fulfillment of the promises of God. And this is a promise that wasn't just made once. It's a promise that's reiterated throughout the prophets. I could give you a dozen references. I'll share two with you now. One from Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. We're told that a shoot's going to come out of this stump. A branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom and of understanding. A spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. It's one of many references in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah pointing forward to this one who's going to come from the line of David. Skip over to Jeremiah, chapter 33. This one's a little more explicit. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Promises like this throughout the prophets. Scriptures that Mary and the nation of Israel knew well. This is what they're waiting for. This promised king, and one of the reasons I wanted to read all of that from Second Samuel is because almost every line is paralleled between the verses we're considering in Luke one and the promises that God made in Second Samuel to David. So in Second Samuel seven nine, God says He will make for David a great name. We see the same adjective used in our passage: He will be great. In verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Gabriel tells Mary he will be called the son of the Most High. And there's the promise of a throne. Verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and will establish a kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's unmistakably clear that what Gabriel is telling Mary is the fulfillment of the promise made to David. He tells Mary, you're going to give birth to a king. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And it will be a reign that will never end. This was emphasized in in 2 Samuel 7. We see it several times. We can see verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne established forever. An eternal kingdom. And in our minds as people, that doesn't even make sense. How could someone reign forever? Forever. And yet we see it repeated over and over, promise after promise, prophecy after prophecy. There is a king coming whose throne will have no end. You have to know how many of these I deleted because I wanted to read these prophecies for an hour. (laughs) I'll just give you one more. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, listen to this, spoiler alert, it's about Jesus, okay? To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion and everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Maybe it feels like we're a long ways from Luke chapter 1. What you have to know is what Gabriel is telling Mary is the fulfillment of all of these. She's going to give birth to a king, but what does that mean? What does it mean that the birth of Jesus is the birth of a king? Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise made to David. As we read this, we should rejoice. Church, God keeps his promises. He sent the long-awaited and promised king. And we could stop there and celebrate that the king has come. The king was born. But isn't there a question that remains? A practical question? What went wrong? Because Jesus never sat on a throne that we saw. If Jesus was born as the long-awaited king, if he was born as the Son of the Most High, if he was born as the one who would sit on an eternal throne, then what happened? Was Gabriel mistaken? Did the plan and the promises of God fail? Well, of course, the answer must be no. The promises of God do not fail. Then what happened? Here's what we know. We know that Jesus came and he was born in fulfillment of the promises. We also know that his first coming was not the full coming of the kingdom. Jesus came announcing the kingdom, but also knowing that his people would reject him. He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. And this was not a surprise to God. In fact, this was the perfect fulfillment of the plan of God. Israel's disobedience, even even Israel's rejection, did not nullify the promises of God. In fact, they were the means through which he kept his promises. Because the Old Testament did not only prophesy a coming king, but a suffering servant. Jesus came the first time announcing himself as king, bringing a kingdom. But he also came as one who would suffer. And die. church, I think you know what his death accomplished. Because he died, his blood was shed, we can have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not come only to be a king, he came to be a savior. He came as the long-awaited king, but he was killed. And by his death, he paid the price for our sins. Church, this is really good news for us. Because of the rejection of Jesus by Israel, despite all the promises, despite all the prophecies, they did not see him and they rejected him. But because of their rejection, salvation has made available to us, Jews and Gentiles. We can become heirs of the promise. We can become children of God by faith in the finished work of Christ. And now, as those who have been grafted in we now await the promise of a king who's still coming and who will reign forever. We look forward to the reality that the true eternal returning king is coming again. First, in judgment against all those who do not believe. But second, in fulfillment of all the promises made to David. In fulfillment of all the promises made through the prophets. In fulfillment of the words spoken by Gabriel to Mary, the King of Kings will rule forever. When we come to Christmas, we should look back. We should think about the manger and about Mary and Joseph and about Nazareth and Bethlehem and shepherds and stars. We should also remember that the baby that was born was a king who is still coming and who will reign. And so we can look to passages like Revelation 19 and recognize that this is the culmination of the birth of Christ. Revelation 19, 11, John says, I saw the heavens opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, and he is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the coming and victorious King. I wondered, as I prepared, <clears throat> if this message would feel disconnected. But I hope you see the thread of the fulfillment of the promises of God. A promise made to David. David. A promise reiterated and fulfilled, the birth of Christ. And a promise for which fulfillment still remains when the king returns. What does it mean that the birth of Jesus was the birth of a king? Well, he was the king promised to come, and he did. And now we have the hope of all the promises being fulfilled the baby born in the manger. Was a king. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus was born a king? Why should we celebrate this? How should the reality that the birth of Jesus was the birth of a king change the way you live on Monday? Or celebrate on Friday? Let me give you three things. You could add ten more to this list probably. I'll give you the three that kind of rose to the top of my thinking this week. First, when we recognize that the birth of Jesus was the birth of a king, we have a reminder that God keeps his promises and he is faithful to his people. God's promises do not fail. And I don't know about you, but that's a reminder I need that we have a God who has a plan that we have a God who has made promises, who keeps his promises and fulfills his plans. We've seen that this morning in the way he fulfilled his promises to David. And what you have to remember, church, is that there were years and generations from the time of David to the time of Christ, and they were not all pretty. There were dark and painful years for the people of God, but God had not forgotten his people. And God had not forgotten his promises. And when Jesus came as the promised king and was killed, that was not a diversion of the plan of God. That was him keeping his promises to save us from our sins. Why does it matter that Jesus was born as a king? It's proof that God keeps his promises and that you can trust him. I am the first to admit that I get nervous when I watch the news. I'm not very old, I don't think, but things are changing quickly. As a believers, we are quickly being pushed to the margins of society. And maybe I'm not so fearful for myself, but I get nervous about what the world will look like for my kids. But we must remember this church, that our world is not out of control because we have a God who keeps his promises. Christmas is a reminder that God's promises do not fail. Christmas is a reminder that the fulfillment of God's promises don't always look the way we thought they would. But his plan is perfect. The king has come, and the king is coming again. So you take time to celebrate Christmas this week, the birth of a king, remind yourself, remind those you're with, God keeps his promises. He's faithful to his people. Second, when we recognize that the birth of Jesus was the birth of a king, we can be reminded that all things will be made right forever. We don't have time this morning to read all of the scriptures about the coming kingdom, about the new heavens and the new earth. But friends, we have to remember that the baby who was born a king is coming again to rule and to reign and to make right all that has been broken by sin. And this is why Isaiah says in chapter 9, we've read it at least three times during this Advent season, but consider what it says. Consider the two parts of this promise. Starting in verse 6, for to us a child is born, a son is given. And then he points us forward and says a government will be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The king is coming. And it can be easy to be overwhelmed, to think that things are too far gone. But the birth of Christ is the birth of the one who will come, who will establish a perfect and eternal kingdom, peace with no end. And let me be clear about this. When he comes, he does come in judgment. And anyone who does not believe in him, who has not repented of their sins and trusted in him, will receive eternal judgment. But the hope for all those who have believed is that we will be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. Into a place where there are no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, the former things will have passed away. And that's what's coming. It's true, and we know it's true because there was a baby born in Bethlehem to a virgin, the promised heir of the throne of David. When we recognize that the birth of Jesus was the birth of a king, we can be reminded that all things will be made right. Forever. And third and last, When we recognize that the birth of Jesus was the birth of a king, we should be reminded, church, of our need to submit to him. Christmas is a time of wonder, of awe, of worship. But I also hope it's a week when you consider that the coming of Christ means the coming of a king, a king to whom we are called to submit. There's a call to surrender when we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, is when we acknowledge him as king, we acknowledge that he has the authority and he's to be obeyed. We're coming to the end of a year, wrapping up another, another year. Maybe it's worth asking the question, what area of your life are you still hanging on to that you've not given to Christ? In what place in your heart have you not allowed Christ to be Lord and King? If He's King, the question is, have we submitted to Him? My prayer would be that this coming year would be the year when you let go. When you say, He is King. And His plan and His commandments may not be things I understand but I trust that he's the one who knows best. So I'll trust him. I'll obey him. I'll submit to him. So many implications. We should be a people who proclaim the message of the coming king to the world. So much to consider, but let me try to wrap up three weeks My hope is that as we go into this week, you'll be more prepared because of the time we've spent together to behold Christ. Fully God, the glory of God revealed. Fully man, the glory of God in flesh. The coming king, the king of glory. The one who will rule and reign forever. So as we head into the week of Christmas, my prayer for you and for us is that we would not miss the opportunity to behold Christ, to see him, to worship him, to submit to him, and to find our joy in him. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is the hope of Christmas.